Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. We're still here. We're still under lockdown. I think I've eaten Marmite every day for the last five weeks. Does that make me weird, Thea? Why would that make you weird? Do you not do that? Know. Did you not do that before? Do you know what? It's interesting. It's not interesting, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have a love <laughs> of Marmite, but I feel that I'm sort of eating it more in lockdown. Right. And I, is that and just because you're at home more? In, with ready access it. to it. But I, I asked people on Twitter actually about a week ago what's their kind of what would their what would their lockdown be sponsored by <laughs> if 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 they were sponsored by food stuff. And mine would be Marmite. And some people quite a few people said Marmite because I think there is something the sort of the umami tang of comfort about mm. it that, that people do crave. Mm. But and then some people were saying sort of sweet stuff. It was very stodgy, very carby food generally that people people would be sponsored by yeah would you be just sponsored by a particularly artisanal brand of pasta i would i mean let's face it i would be sponsored by pasta yeah. i would probably choose to be am i allowed to name a brand yeah of course. I'd, I'd i think i'd like to be sponsored by rumo uh, pasta because they're my favorite but they're increasingly hard to come by oh right, well maybe they could sponsor this podcast maybe well, putting, putting the word out there. Yes, exactly. Uh, now, listen, we've got a lot of feedback to get through. Uh, and, and getting emails from listeners and tweets from listeners, it's becoming one of the real joys of lockdown for me. So, uh, so do keep it coming. We've got a couple of categories I want to talk about. Literary pets. <laughs> this is all getting very serious and regimented. It, it is. But li- I knew that people wouldn't let us down on literary pets. So are you ready? Kyle yeah. Burris from Kentucky emailed me with a photo of his cat called... Shop and meow. I'm sure that doesn't. I'm sure. That, I'm sure the full name doesn't isn't used all the time. Also, at, another. This is a connected point. How many people actually call their pets the name that they originally gave them? Yeah, well, that's probably. I, I think though, what you got to do is you got to give it a formal name that can be reduced. So, shop and meow. I think is you know you could then call him. I don't know, shoppy. <laughs> Does that work? I don't know. Anyway, Shop and Meow is genius. More literary, though, is the cat tweeted in by Emma Burris Jansen called Miss Marple. Great name for a cat. Uh, and the cat's apparently a frequent reader of the TLS. She sent us a picture of it sitting on the copy of the paper uh, and says she did, naturally did take issue with the cover piece on the joyousness of dogs. 
That one ended up in the litter tray, I imagine. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah. You know, I've promised my kids cats. You know, after lockdown. Did you mean to do that? Well, we had to give up <laughs> our dog biscuit, as you know, because uh, of the baby. Yeah. And so we haven't had a pet for a year. And the next door neighbours have a cat that comes into our house mainly because we lure it in with food. Uh, and everyone's just really keen on cats. And do you know what, the, what our preferred name is? It's almost literary. Uh, Boudica. Uh, but boo. So I think that works, you see. Um, so Boudica the cat is, is one of the names. Anyway, uh, we've got some more uh, pet names. John Langridge has a dog called Pynchon. Great literary name. And Laura Freeman, the lovely writer and guest on our podcast, used to babysit for a family that had a King Charles Spaniel called Peeps. Creepy Peeps. There you go. And one more. <laughs> Alex Diggins has emailed with this brilliant contribution. When I was growing up, my family had a policy of pet names which followed not only the literary canon, but the classical one. We had a much-loved dog called Horace and a couple of cats, Tiberius and Sappho. <laughs> uh, recently, those standards have rather slipped and my mum now lives with two cockapoos called Mabel and Marmite. Oh, there you go, Marmite. There we, there we go, it all comes back together. And one more pet, I will shut up in a minute. We've had Beckett named after Samuel. But Geoffrey Boone offers another Beckett. Ours is, not ne is named not for the playwright, but for the quondam archbishop and martyr. He comes complete with hair shirt. Very good. And anyone who uses the word quondam in a tweet is all right with me. So anyway, uh, that's the literary pets. Can we do better than that? I, I, I like to think we are. So if, you, if you're sitting there listening with a literary pet, the bar is set very high. Um, before we move on, some food reflections. <laughs> Sabina Zambon emailed with a photo from the aftermath of panic buying in Italy. Do you remember this, Theo? And I do, it, yes. she, she sent a picture of a supermarket that had been sort of gutted by a horde of hungry people and they'd left baked beans. <laughs> and you replied to that email, Thea, with an absolutely astonishing fact that you were once offered the gig of copywriting for Heinz in Italy. Yeah, it was it was a weird one of those weird things, you know, when people approach you on LinkedIn and, and make you strange offers. Um, no, no one's ever done that to me. Oh, really? No. <laughs> I left LinkedIn <laughs> promptly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and I couldn't job... I couldn't bring myself to do it. And what would you have to do? Would you have to come up with like cool? cool I'm not quite of... sure. I didn't I didn't allow things to get that far. Um, it you... just felt like something I didn't want to to be involved with. But um, how's this for a coincidence? This morning. I got a press release reporting that according to an online shop catering to British expats, I think it, I can't remember what it was called. I think it might have been called Corner Shop or something like that. Um, but baked beans have seen a 44% increase in sales among British expats uh, compared to the same period last year. Crumpets are up 55% and they break it down by country. So in Italy, apparently, Branston Pickle and uh, McVitie's Ginger Nuts are particularly popular at the moment. Uh, okay. I mean, well, I, well, I don't know what to, to do with that information apart from share it. Well, that's all we can do with information. That's, uh, <laughs> I can see that, but that's, is that English people? Do you, can you imagine? Yeah, any, yeah, that's British expats. Yeah, I can't imagine. Can you imagine nonnas sort of wandering down to the shop and picking up the Branston pickle? Well, my, my nonna, of course, um, being a slightly odd one, <laughs> she, she, she does love McVitie's ginger nuts. There we go. So I, I actually sent her some by post around Easter time. <laughs> I love this stuff. Anyway, uh, you know the drill. Get in touch with your food habits, expat or otherwise, reading habits, literary pets, anything that stimulates 
uh, you from this podcast. Tweet us at the TLS, at stigable, at Thea underscore Leonard Dutzer. You can always email me at stig.able at the-tls.co.uk. This bit of the podcast is getting longer and longer, Thea. But, it's longer than the uh, podcast itself. It, it is, but I, I do enjoy it. Uh, meanwhile, let me help you subscribe cheaply to the TLS. All you need to do is use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. It's the best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for five pounds or five dollars. Coming up this week, it might be as easy as ABC, but when did alphabetization become a thing? James Waddell has reviewed a new book on the subject and introduced me to the phrase, it's hard to say, I'm gonna give it a go, anti-ABC Didarianism. Is that right, Theo? Uh, I think so. ABC I try. I think I try to flow it all together and make it yes. make a mess of it. Anti, Anti-Abbasidinarianism? That's better, <laughs> Abbasidinarianism. It's almost certainly wrong. Yeah, you're still the pronunciation guru. Uh, that's uh, to come. Uh, one of my favourite TLS writers, BJ Silcox, has written essa- an essay about her life since coronavirus, living in Western Australia while her husband is in Cairo. And as mask wearing may become part of the new normal, how common is it in Eastern societies and what can that teach us? Samuel Taylor Coleridge railing against when, in 1784, he described information divided into innumerable fragments, scattered like a mirror broken on the ground, presenting instead of one, a thousand images, but none entire. The answer is not that he had time-travelled to the gates of modernism and did not at all like what he saw, but rather that the second edition of the Encyclopaedia Britannica had taken a rather different approach to the organisation of information. The reason Coleridge was so wound up, and I'm afraid my reading just now didn't do justice to his ire, was <laughs> alphabetization, And he wasn't the only one to take issue. Judith Flanders has treated the surprisingly disorderly history of Abyssinianism, which is easier to write than it is to say, in a book called A Place for Everything. James Waddle reviews it in this week's TLS, and he is here on the line to tell us all about it. Hello, James. Hello. Hi. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, so... ABCD, etc., is so natural a means of organisation for us now, in, in Latinate languages at least, that it's kind of difficult to imagine anyone objecting. It seems to us almost the ultimate in logic. But the disapproval goes back far beyond Coleridge. What, 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 were, the kind of, what were the main charges against it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so funny, isn't it, that, that Coleridge anecdote? I mean, it's, it's so sort of classic Coleridge it's like why would you put across your ideas in a simpler form when you can (laughs) get them across in a deeply complex and arcane way known only to you which is ultimately flawed and doomed but um it's 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 not as unique to him as you say as it might sound so you know really the book is almost more of a history of anti-alphabetical order or of alternatives to alphabetical order as much as it's a history of alphabetical order itself so another character is um, Abraham France, who's this sort of grammarian poet and lawyer who in the 1580s writes in a kind of similar vein to Coleridge. And he says that if you prefer to have your legal textbooks in alphabetical order, you might as well prefer to eat acorns with hogs than bread with men. So pretty, pretty strong condemnation. But I mean, I suppose he was never really that that concerned with readability anyway. I mean, he wrote all of his poetry in um, classical hexameters, which is not really a form that 
especially cares for clarity of communication. But I mean, the, the point is that in, in this, this respect, at least, France and Coleridge, um, they're not actually outliers. They're part of a very long tradition um, of alphabet critique. And I think what that tradition has as a common vein is this sense that alphabetical order is arbitrary, that it defies the divine arrangement of things that has been set before us by God. So obviously in medieval and early modern society where um, the power structures of society depend to a large extent on the uh, innate structures of the divinely ordered universe and when books and written records are part of reifying and reflecting those structures, you know, messing with the order is potentially a, you know, pretty subversive idea. Um, so what that means is that in your, you know, medieval leech books, your medical books, they're arranged with diseases and cures in order, a capite ad calcem, from head to heel. Um, scholarly books are ordered sky, then sea, then land, then, then people divided into classes and, 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 and so on. Um, and alphabetical order is quite threatening to all that because it's essentially arbitrary, you know, it, it's completely neutral. So if your last name uh, was Adamson and you always come at the start of lists, um, that's not because you own lots of land or because you are richer than everyone else or because you're born before anyone else all of which would be kind of um ordering systems based in meaning it's just because that happens to be your name and what this means is that alphabetical order doesn't reflect people's values back at them um and that's something which we find quite useful today but is quite kind of you know threatening to um uh, to, to societies historically. I always tell my children, because I'm able, so I'm always, I, in school, I was always at the, the, the front of the register. I tell my kids, it's good, you should, you should seize the opportunity, you'll often be asked to do things first. That's great that you should count yourself lucky that you're, you're, you're an able, because that, that means you get to do things first, and it means you can show off that you're, you can do them. <laughs> and not be judged compared to how other people have done it before. Exactly, you. but also I think, I, think, I think you have to be a bit more confident if you're at the top. Of this, this arbitrariness is exactly right, isn't it? That There's no reason why you'd be called upon first, but you probably will be called upon first more often than not, and that will in some ways shape how you behave a bit. So it does have force, doesn't it? I think that's right. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a point which, which Flanders actually doesn't actually make so much in the book. Um, but I've just been rereading the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers, where he talks about, you know, these kind of unexpected hidden factors which lead some people to become, you know, terribly successful where others aren't. So, I don't know, whatever, like a disproportionate disproportionate number of billionaires have late birthdays, which means they go into the school year below, so they're older than their classmates or, or, or whatever. So I, I, I wondered if something similar applied to the alphabet, you know, if you're always being called on first in the register, does that have some kind of marginal impact that builds up over time? And sure enough, it turns out <laughs> that um, some studies have demonstrated that um, if you have a name that's closer to the top of the alphabet, you're more likely to get into a better university, to get a better job and so on. So yeah, maybe the alphabet isn't actually entirely 
value neutral after all. And as someone with a, with a, with a W surname, oh, yeah. I've clearly been suffering from <laughs> all my life. I'm almost exactly in the middle. <laughs> Completely mediocre. Silent prejudice against you, James. It, now we should fight back against it. Um, <laughs> one of the striking things you've said uh, that you say in the piece in the book talks about is that we regard that the sort of handiness of alphabetization, that the, the, the ease and usefulness of it as almost intuitive and second nature. But it's striking that for thousands of years since alphabets, that wasn't really seen as an obvious, an obvious trait, an obvious benefit, was it? No, no. I mean, I think actually, in a way, the benefits of alphabetical order for us are the same things which make it, um, you know, the same qualities which make it potentially a deeply troublesome and problematic organizational system for pre-enlightenment scholars and clerks, because it doesn't tell you anything about the things or persons which are being sorted. So, you know, it can help you to organize things and it can help you to find things, but it doesn't tell you anything about those things. You know, it doesn't help you to understand them. And obviously the kind of flip side of that, the plus side, is that you don't need to understand anything about the things being ordered in order to, in order to find them or use them. So, you know, if someone tells me to go to a um, biology library and find a book about um, dipterology and the books in the biology library are placed in order of species and subspecies, then you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to admit that I'm probably going to have quite a hard time finding that book. Um, but if the library is arranged in alphabetical order, then it's going to be just as easy for me to find a book about um, dipterology as it would to be to find a book about dogs or Darwin or, um, you know, whatever other biological topics begin with D. Um, so, so in that sense, it's kind of a magical tool. You know, you can, it's almost as if without it, all of the knowledge that humans have been accumulating over centuries would just sort of be lying in these big stacks, unsifted and, and, and unfindable. But that's what people used to want, wasn't it? I mean, I mean that, is that the point that you, you draw in the end? That there was a time when knowledge was precious and, and hoarded by people, the church primarily, to say, you know, mysteries, the idea that you, you had to be granted some sort of special access and there was a whole bunch of common people who couldn't get that access and shouldn't have that access. So is this sort of democratization of, uh, of the alphabet, does that kind of coincide with, with democratization more generally, the, type, the thinking that this should be available for everyone? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's Flanders sort of one of her big claims, isn't it? Is that she talks about, um, I mean, this is, this is actually almost um, more a point about alphabetical writing systems rather than alphabetical order. So, which is, sounds like a fine distinction, but you have alphabetical writing systems for quite a long time before people think about using alphabetical order for anything other than memorizing the, the alphabet. So um, alphabetical writing systems are, you know, seem very intuitive to us and they come to us so naturally, you know, they're probably literally almost the first thing that you learn about as a child that is theoretical and detached from your immediate experiential um, uh, uh, reality. Um, but despite that, it's actually not that intuitive. So before you have the alphabetic writing systems that we're all familiar with today, which stays amazingly consistent throughout its, its history, you have logographic writing systems in which every character carries some kind of inherent 
meaning. So you might have a character for ox, you might have a character for the suffix pre, but each character basically carries some kind of semantic content. Um, but the letters of the alphabet don't carry any semantic content by themselves. They represent sounds without meanings of their own. And Flanders compares this um, to the invention of money in the sixth century BC, because money and letters um, in the alphabetical system um, are both kind of detached, fungible signifiers. And this is a really amazing innovation when you think about it. You know, you go from having these writing systems with thousands of characters that, as, as you say, are quite jealously guarded often by a, a, a priestly or a scholarly elite, to having a system with 20, 25 symbols which can achieve as much conceptual complexity as language itself. So, yeah, it's, uh, it is an extraordinary democratizing thing. And I think, um, you know, the fact that the earliest um, attestations of alphabetical writing systems, um, which pretty much um, all come from one place in uh, the Western uh, desert of Upper Egypt, um, they're left by traders and mercenaries. And I think it's instructive that those are the people who are coming up with this because they need a quick, rough and ready, versatile writing system that gets across what they're trying to say. Um, and also, I mean, all of this work that had to happen to, to language itself in order to kind of open the gate in the first place, and then all of the resistance that followed um, that, when, when and where and why did it start to catch on as a, as a, as a way of organising information? I mean, I mean, it takes a long time to emerge and it, it definitely becomes a more common system as the 16th and 17th centuries progress. And that's partly because you're operating in this more sort of rationalist post-enlightenment paradigm, whereby you're a bit less possibly concerned with the divinely ordered world as passed down to us by our intellectual forebears. So that's... That's one uh, uh, a reason why it grows in popularity. Although even these big enlightenment figures, you know, people like uh, Robert Boyle, the natural philosopher, he organizes his notes with this insane combination of streamers, strings, different colors of covers, numerals. He writes little mnemonic poems so that you can remember where everything is. Um, so, but, but broadly the picture is that as you move into this different kind of intellectual paradigm, um, it, 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 it becomes more conducive to the system. Also practical reasons. So you have increasingly complex scholarly demands, increasingly complex administrative demands as the state um, bureaucratizes. So something that Flanders points out is that well into the history of Norman England, it's totally fine for legal assertions to be made by 12 knights turning up and swearing an oath aloud. But as the state begins to rely more on written record, that kind of thing becomes a lot less practical. You need to locate documents, even if you don't know anything about their content or understand what's in them. And as we were talking about before, that's where alphabetical order comes in very handy. On, uh, on a final point, we should say that anti-Abbasidinarianism is not entirely a thing of the past. It must it? be. It must be. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, interestingly, um, you know, I talked about Abraham Franz, the, the lawyer, and anti-alphabetization 
um, probably has one of its real contemporary strongholds now in the legal world. So there's still some Supreme Court judges who say that alphabetized legal textbook, textbooks, you know, reduce legal principles to just a floating linguistic phenomena. Um, but there's also kind of more practical complaints about it. So using one alphabet uh, for everything does cause problems in an increasingly globalized society. So there's one story that Flanders mentions in the book where the International Olympic Committee has these guidelines which say that countries should enter opening ceremonies in alphabetical order. Um, but obviously, if the Olympics is being uh, hosted in a country that doesn't use the Roman alphabet, um, that causes problems. So, you know, at the Seoul Games in 1988, you had Ghana entering first, followed by Gabon, um, because Ga is the first syllable of the Korean syllabary, which meant that you had Western TV networks kind of tearing their hair out, completely frazzled, <laughs> trying to work out where they should put their ad breaks so that they wouldn't have um, an advert on top of their own country's uh, uh, appearance. Um, it's a good lesson generally that there, isn't it? Because we always assume uh, that our alphabet, our system is the system and um, the world has to shape itself around whatever system we've got. And it's probably quite a useful lesson to, to remember that different organisational principles exist in different parts of the world who don't regard the centre of the earth to be London or, or Britain. Right, yeah, especially because, um, you know, we, we, we all use writing technologies that are internationally produced and... You know, Western keyboards are potentially problematic if you're trying to use Chinese characters, for example. I mean, it's made easier now with um, uh, pinyin and uh, predictive uh, text to write Chinese characters with Western keyboards. But nevertheless, it's like an imperfect um, solution. So, yeah, even if it seems neutral to, to us, it might not seem that way in the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, this is this is completely irrelevant. But I'm going to say it anyway. There was a time uh, a couple of years ago when the whole British press were trying to get into the White House for a briefing, and because Britain does its date order different to America, everyone's birth dates on their passports were different to the birth dates that they were giving to the people on the uh, at the door of the White House, and the, and the press couldn't get in. That those are, because because uh, because they're just like why why are you saying your birthday's in September when it's clearly in in November and they're like no no we we put the we put the day obviously we make sense uh, and actually America is an outlier they they go month day year and obviously most countries do day month year but it's things like that that um it is a useful thing to think about how what we regard as as just uncontrover incontrovertible neutral neutral things are not neutral. Mm, it's good to be tripped up sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, it's it's, it's that that story just 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 kind of illustrates once again that you know, um, there's no. It's like Borges says that there's no classification of the universe that is not arbitrary and conjectural. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, you know, the impossibility of of trying to understand the um, design of the universe and its infinite complexity it doesn't mean that we're not going to come up with these um, flawed systems anyway, even though we're kind of aware that they're provisional and might mean that you can't get into the White House interview that you're trying to get into. Um, Indeed, it's something it. we try to do almost every week on this podcast, I would yeah. say. Well, not I would say the White House. <laughs> 
I don't think we'd be welcome in the White House there. But also, <laughs> I, I feel that this piece actually does exactly the thing that I, I want to happen is that you think, oh, ABC, I understand that. And of course, I don't. We don't. No one does properly. And now you've, you've given us uh, a, a, a lesson in it. So, uh, James, we're very grateful for that. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. I love that. I love also, Thea, the fact that we, get, we end up with Borges as well. You, we, I felt it, we needed him to pop I felt it was coming, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's how some people end up writing for the TLS. Sometimes they send an email with some ideas or published articles. We read it and think this person really has something. We don't always do it, but it's really important to us that we discover writers who may go on to become brilliant contributors to the TLS. Well, that happened with BJ Silcox, who sent me her tremendous takedown of Jermaine Greer in The Australian. And now she reviews all sorts for us all the time, which makes me very happy indeed. Anyway, BJ is Australian, but until recently lived in Cairo with her diplomat husband. And while he stayed there when the coronavirus struck, her weak lungs sent her home to WA. She's written a love letter of sorts from there and is on the line with us now. BJ, hello. Hello. Um, firstly, before we, we, we talk about your, your lovely piece, um, paint the scene for us. What's it like there in Western Australia? Well, I'm at the southernmost tip of Western Australia, right down the bottom in a little town called Albany. And for readers who are lovers of Australian literature, it's the hometown of Tim Winton, our much beloved oh, Australian fiction writer. It is, yes. So anyone who has loved uh, Breath or yeah. some of his early novels or Island Home, that beautiful book he wrote about the Australian landscape, will, will know Albany from the page. But that is where I'm based at the moment, on the, on the banks of the Lower King River. And it's a, it's a beautiful spot. If you have to pick a spot to be quarantined, I, I highly recommend it. And how free are you to, are you free to go out, get to the beach and to wander around? How strict is your quarantine? It's just starting to ease off. So we're just starting to see the region come back to life. Although Western Australia locked its regions down, so you weren't able to travel from region to region. And I think that's had a lot to do with kind of keeping it 
very much in a couple of isolated places. So we were spared we were spared a lot of coronavirus. I think we had only nine active cases in the region that we were in and they were all identified. So we're at that point now where restrictions are starting to ease off, but that's their horrible feeling of both a sense of incipient freedom and then that are we being complacent? Are we starting to get out too early? And there's that very awkward feeling of life isn't ever going to return to what we know it to be but at the same time there's an opportunity for it to bloom again and where do we sit in that and how do we engage with the world in a place in in an isolated place in the most isolated state in an isolated nation so it's a a very strange feeling and from where we are australia and i mean not so much as new zealand perhaps but still in the same in the same breath is being reported as a success story in terms of dealing with COVID? Does it feel like that there? Do you feel like you're in a country that's got a grip on things that is handling things well? I think it certainly feels like we're in control of of how bad the virus is getting, but certainly the economic wallop is coming. And that's the great fear now. I think it's shifted from a sense that we're going to be hit with with large swathes of the virus infecting people and moving towards that sense of our economy, our way of life is going to be irrevocably changed. And how do we cope with that? It looks like our second airline, we only have two major airline carriers, has gone into administration in the last week. It's, it's clear the economic impact is going to be mighty and large and long. And so... How do we, as a country, which is quite isolated from the global economy, how do we start to rebuild that? Uh, what does a new normal look like? So I think there's a kind of a shift in, in where, the, where the focus is. And as well, I mean, Australia talk about things coming in threes. There, were, there was the crisis of the fires, coronavirus crisis, and now, and now you're talking about an oncoming economic crisis. And we're living them simultaneously. Uh, so I'm... At the, I'm very close to the Stirling Ranges, which was hit by not the East Coast bushfires, we're on the West Coast, but there were some horrific bushfires here. And uh, in my first week out of quarantine, my parents drove me for a bushwalk in some of the bush, uh, bushfire damaged zone. And I've seen bushfire damaged bush before, but I've never seen annihilation like this. And it is utter annihilation. You're walking in rubble of a bush that was there. And they say it'll be about 100 years before it is able, if it is at all able, to recover to what it was before. I've never seen the kind of incendiary damage that these bushfires had. And it feels like walking in a, a forest of, of ghosts. The, the regrowth is, is very small. There were skeletons of kangaroos and the mammals that couldn't get away, kind of bleached and charcoaled out. The whole place was absolutely thick with flies and ants that were kind of crawling over the dead. It was an extraordinary scene and it happened months ago and it still has that incredible wretch to it, the smoke of it. So these are very much overlaid across one another and the the damage of that, I think, for want of a better word, cyclically to the country that anchors so much of who it is and what it cares about in landscape and who we are as people in the iconic sense of an Australian landscape. Uh, it's um, it's it's devastating, but it it's had a sense of a kind of collective, inchoate grief. I think we've we know that we've lost something that matters incredibly to us, but the scope of that grief is is huge and and hard to to pin. You start your your piece um, talking about some of the local fauna, the millipedes that uh, that surround you. Tell us about them. 
Well, yeah, so I flew from, from Egypt to Australia and, and landed in my, my parents have a kind of converted shed that they've made into this wonderful quarantine palace for me. And I feel like a kind of indiscreet ingrate of a daughter for immediately writing about the fact that it was infested with insects. There's been a huge sort of infestation of, of millipedes this year. They're Portuguese millipedes and they're an, in, they're a introduced species that don't belong in Australia and as, as I said in my piece they're a nuisance rather than a menace but they're everywhere and my first few nights here sort of a bit a bit struck with with jet lag and the kind of heartbreak of the decision I just made and the indefiniteness of the separation every night you could hear them on the floor sort of dropping from the walls and I started to kind of collect them these millipedes that had come inside drawn in by the light of my cell phone and my laptop and my bedside light and the whole floor was alive with these introduced species but also a kind of plague within a plague and then I sort of stumbled over this incredibly rich stinking metaphor and <laughs> it got me kind of the storyteller as I say the storyteller in my brain went nuts and thought oh this is brilliant I have something to write about as they were curling into my bed sheets and oh, all gosh. over my feet <laughs> yeah. yeah there's nothing more humbling than finding a, a millipede in your underpants so I knew I had to write about it, but for what story? And, and that's what I grapple with in the piece that I've had the privilege to write for the TLS is how do you take a, a decision like the decision I made to, to indefinitely leave my husband in Egypt? How do you take that decision and make a story out of it? How will any of us take the stories that we have out of COVID and, and turn them into the narratives that we tell to others and to our children and to history? And stories are our memory makers and our history makers and the kind of weight of that is all caught up for me in this very potent metaphor that I didn't quite know what to do with. And you make the point very movingly in your piece that, you know, we all tell stories about what this has been like and we will tell stories. But at the moment, you don't know how this story is going to end. You've been separated from your husband. He's in Cairo, which is like everywhere in the world, a dangerous place to be. You're back home in, in a shed in your parents' place in Western Australia. You don't know how long you're going to be separated. You don't know how this story is going to end. No, I don't. And I think for me that, and for many other people, I think the terror of COVID is that it's, it's indefiniteness, it's uncertainty. It's how much it plays with our very human desire for endings, for closure, for, for certainty. And, and I don't have an ending to that story. And I can imagine a number of them and some of them are terrifying and some of them are beautiful. And it's hard not to be kept awake at night wondering how this part of my my marriage will play out and how this will play out for all of us and and it had me thinking about well how do you start to tell the beginning of a story where you don't know what the end is what does it mean to start to put those pieces in place to as I write in my piece to anoint the the heroes and the villains and to think about the lessons we will learn and won't learn and what we will remember and forget um, what do you most miss about your husband? He might listen to this, actually. He'll be in, in Cairo. He might listen to this, this podcast. What's the, what's, the, what's the one little thing you most miss about him? Oh, it's going to make him so uncomfortable to say it. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> say it, say it, say it. I'm, I miss being held. I miss being, I miss being held, which will make him... He will know that that's true and it will make him very uncomfortable because he's an incredibly private person, but I miss being held. And I also miss... He's, he has an extraordinary mind and... 
we have loved each other for 22 years. I met him in the very first week of university. He was the first person that I, the first friendship that I had at university. And he's, in a sense, I moved my entire life and he's my oldest friend. And that's a really great way to hold on to your best friend is to marry them. So they have to stay with you. <laughs> and so he has this extraordinary mind and ours spark off one another. And I feel like 22 years ago, I started a conversation that I'm still having. And I miss being in the same room to bounce that conversation back and forth with each other to pull the world apart in the way that only he can. And what was it like in, in Cairo, in Egypt? Because, uh, you know, I think this virus, the, the feeling of it is, exper- I mean, in some ways it's the same in every city, in every town, in every country. And yet I, I suspect it probably is, is experienced differently. How did it feel um, as the sort of rumours swirled in a, in a city like Cairo? Cairo is such a guarded place in many ways that it was an interesting time to be there that there was certainly what we knew about it was that COVID was definitely in Luxor with the tourist boats, but we didn't know much more about it. And there was this kind of strangely wrenched in between place between the kind of incipient panic of what was coming, this, this feeling that this wave was coming, but then also life was incredibly normal at the point at which we decided to go. And so that feeling, that kind of eye of a storm feeling where you know that something is about to hit, but you don't know the shape of it. And yet you're still buying flowers on the street and going and walking. You know, I had a friend visiting who was actually on her Cairo dream holiday, which turned out to be rather not what she was expecting. But we were still sightseeing together and pointing out the old buildings and the island in Zamalek where I live. And it all felt incredibly normal, but in an incredibly artificial way. Yeah. So it was a, it was a strange un, unbelonging. Um, I feel it would be a shame if we didn't take this opportunity to, um, to learn something about the biosignature emitter diagram. As, as I say in my piece, misinformation blooms everywhere. And as I was getting ready to leave, there was this kind of flurry of, of people trying to make sense of what was about to come. And one of it was a community centre where I teach creative writing was sending us homeopathic remedies that would cure the coronavirus. And then also plans to print off the biosignature emitter diagram, which was a... I still have it, a, um, a PDF of a, a very set of in, intentional squiggles with a space in the middle where you would put your photograph and you would print it and put your photo in the middle because it carried all of your essential, essential energy. And if you put it on the wall, the, the lines and squiggles would sort of grasp all of the energy that was in the air and push it towards you somehow and create a kind of elemental force field that would pr- protect me from the virus and 5G as long as I kept it free of dust. Oh, it sounds so obvious when you say it. It does, but <laughs> I kind of received this on the day that I left and thought, how do you, how do I process how to think about this? Uh, uh, Bija, have you had COVID, do you think? Please? No. Well, there you go then. You know, <laughs> I, I'm no scientist, but I believe that constitutes proof that that works. But I also did not print it and did not put my face oh, in the middle of oh, it. Oh, oh, God. Oh, no. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't prove anything. Maybe it proves nothing. We'll never know now. <laughs> yeah, I was too blithe with my safety. I was too busy oh. hopping on a plane to find a photograph and, and print the biosignature emitter diagram. That 5G, th- the whole 5G controversy has been one of those things that I know as someone interested in the news, I should have taken more interest in but I just haven't quite clicked that 
what is it? There's a conspiracy theory, isn't it, that some people think this this whole uh, virus is faked in order to, to to what sell 5G? Is that a thing? Is that is that is that the controversy? Well, I I believe that it was 5G is causing the virus. I'm not. I think there's probably an argument that the coronavirus and there's probably a piece to be written about this somewhere that brings out both the best and the worst in people. Variety. As does any crisis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's probably true. Probably true. Um, um, BJ, you talk about plague literature and how you don't really want to to read it, which I I do understand. We've covered a lot of plague literature in one way or other in the TLS over the last couple of weeks. Well, in uh, fact, I reviewed we... two plague pieces for you earlier, oh, at the did. end of last year. Yes, yeah, yeah, ironically exactly. enough. Uh, but I, it's not something I want to turn to, uh, although we've got a lovely piece coming up on, on sort of Defoe's um, uh, Journal of the Plague Year. Um, and people are, I think, interested in it. But one of the things we are doing a lot on this podcast is talking about what we're reading and watching in lockdown. Uh, so if it's not plague literature, what are your, what are you, what are you, what's, what's, what's distracted you, BJ, over the last couple of Well, I did have grand plans, as many people do, that this was going to be the time that I sat down and faced the shelf of constant reproach, which is all the books that have been sitting there glaring at me that I, you know, that I pretend to read at dinner parties. And one of them was going to be Middlemarch. But there's just too many manners and too many vicars. And so I have not, (laughs) in fact, been reading Middlemarch. I've been catching up. We have a very valiant a number of valiant independent bookstores in Australia that are staying open, one in Albany here that that stayed open, and then a couple that in there's one in the Avid Reader bookstore in, in Queensland that have been posting books out to people. So I've been catching up on all the amazing Australian literature that's come out that I missed the chance to get my mitts on when I was in Cairo. So that's been really exciting to sort of catch up with something that I sort of felt distant from and any recommendations eleanor savage blueberries if i'm going to give you one that's the one well, sold I, yeah <laughs> i love i love a good recommendation bj uh, bj look after yourself i know you're going to see your husband soon uh, i know he'll be uncomfortable now about you you talking about him but <laughs> that's always a service i i, I like to, to, to provide uh, thank you so much for joining us oh and thank you for having me it's been really wonderful to talk My mother-in-law, Jeanette, a very fine woman, has been spending some of her lockdown time making masks for all the family out of old T-shirts and spare bits of elastic. The idea being that when we all go back to school and work, we will have some protection. And I have to say, we've been eyeing them nervously. Wearing a mask feels even proleptically stifling, awkward, a bit creepy. But that may just be a social construct of ours. Jordan Sand this week ponders the difference between East and West when it comes to mask wearing, contrasting the dithering that happens in, say, his Native America with the sea of surgical masks visible in Tokyo, where he resides for part of the year. Why the split and when did it happen? Jordan is with us to consider the matter further. Jordan, hello. Hello. Um, mask wearing as a kind of issue of coronavirus is, is sort of growing day by day in Britain and I think in, in the US probably as well. Are you surprised that it's kind of been the subject of so much controversy and dispute and, and concern? Because uh, from your account, it feels like a relatively straightforward response to, to a pandemic. I guess it does feel to me fairly straightforward. Uh, I, I don't know that I'm so surprised that some people feel resistance to wearing something they had not worn before and there are social implications to it. Uh, I was surprised that uh, we had to, that it would rise to the level of something that had to be, had to be pronounced upon by uh, institutions like the WHO and the CDC here. Uh, and uh, equally surprised in a way 
that uh, so many of us, and I have to include myself here, uh, waited for those pronouncements before doing something. Yeah. yeah. I actually find that day by day in Britain, at least, if you go out onto the street, you see more and more masks. It feels like from a very, very low base, it's, it's beginning to become normal, if not quite normal yet. Yes, it's the same in the supermarket in my neighborhood. Uh, I'm sure most of the people I see are wearing them for the first time, and many of them are improvising them. Uh, but they've become uh, quite normal just in the course of a few weeks. Is it, I, I wonder if in the West, to generalise massively here, we, we find it harder to accept that we might be vectors of disease. We take it as some kind of indictment on ourselves and our way of life. I suppose that's possible. You know, I, I really, I, I can't say too much about the psychological uh, uh, peculiarities of different nations with regard to uh, infection there, but I'm struck more that it's, it's seen, seen as somehow threatening and alienating. And one thinks of the veil in France, the idea mm -hmm. that somebody would cover themselves is uh, itself looked frowned upon, I guess. But I don't know. Yeah. Your expertise is in, in Japanese history. Um, tell us about Japan and it hits its history of, of mask wearing, because it's become relatively an acceptable part of, of culture there, hasn't it? Yeah, a custom, really. I mean, it's very, very widespread today in the flu period and I mean, in, in the cold months of the winter and also through when the pollens are at their most active in the spring. So you see them through a good portion of the year. And it, it seems to go back quite a ways. The most uh, historians date the widespread uh, mask wearing in Japan, as in many other countries, to the flu pandemic of 1918. Although there does seem to have been an earlier efflorescence of mask wearing in Manchuria during a pneumonic plague outbreak in 1910-11. But in any case, in Japan, uh, uh, the first instance of the mass of ordinary civilians wearing masks seems to be uh, in the 1918 flu epidemic. And uh, what's interesting is that then it stuck. Not everybody wore them all the time. It seems to have ebbed and flowed subsequently, but it was popular. Uh, and I, I suspect that that's because th that was a time when um, new trends coming from the West were eagerly uh, lapped up in Japan. And, uh, and uh, particularly if they had the air of uh, modern science. Uh, and so uh, there was little resistance. And subsequently, even without any encouragement from the authorities, Japanese would wear them frequently in flu season. And as I said, more recently in what hay fever season um you, you talk though in the piece about the, a kind of a japanese attunement to the problem of contagion uh you've got a great quote from 1808 um air is strong people do not know its strength air is to humans what water is to fish the idea that air is a medium that can carry things it's it has a sort of certain solidity to it is is is, is that a sort of is that a cultural um uh, uh, touch point of uh, of Japan, do you think the sort of the awareness of of the danger of the air? Well, no, you know, I think, and I reading uh, scholars in the history of medicine, which is not my uh, actual area of uh, of expertise, but I, I think that the uh, more natural way to 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 understand this is that um, contagion in some form has been understood intuitively uh, very widely by people throughout the world um, and for, for centuries or millennia. Uh, and uh, that it, so widely that, that, that uh, 
doctors in some European and American doctors were resistant to the idea because the terms in which it was usually understood were uh, of uh, malevolent spirits or curses. And so uh, it became associated in the West with superstition. Um, and what's interesting is the long progress towards the eventual, of course, the, the, the uh, discovery of um, bacteria and then viruses under the microscope uh, of uh, understanding what air is and what is uh, carried in it. Uh, and that uh, quotation that I, I, I cited, it's from, it's, a, it's from a very interesting moment because uh, uh, this is a Japanese uh, scholar in a period in which the, uh, the shogun's government had uh, closed off all uh, trade and diplomacy uh, with Europe, uh, with the exception of a small Dutch outpost in the port of Nagasaki. And uh, Japanese scholars were getting all of their information about uh, developments in science in Europe through uh, books provided to them by the Dutch. Uh, and, and so, in fact, uh, uh, everything connected with uh, modern science coming from Europe was referred to as Dutch studies. And here was this scholar of Dutch studies uh, who was reading uh, uh, materials that he had received from the Dutch uh, or that had circulated uh, from that trading post uh, and understanding that uh, um, it had been demonstrated experimentally that uh, um, air was, uh, was a substance. It was made of molecules and it had uh, mass and, and density. And uh, looking for commonplace ways to uh, convey this to a general audience in Japan. And so he makes the comparison. Air is to humans what water is to fish. Uh, it's not just a void that we move through. We know that water has mass and density, and yet fish inhabit it. And similarly, we inhabit the air, but at the same time, air has, has substance uh, to it, and uh, that substance passes into our bodies as well. Um, and so I think this is a process of sort of trying to um, understand in empirical terms something that many people had perhaps intuited, uh, but had only been able to articulate in terms of um, the supernatural. And then masks play a role sort of almost symbolically, don't they? Because they separate people. They may even actually at some point in, in, in culture have demonstrated people having medical training, so actually being the opposite of superstition, Jordan, the sense that if you're wearing a mask, you may be marking yourself up as someone scientific. Well, of course. I mean, I think particularly the, you know, the gauze or the white surgical mask uh, that uh, seems to uh, come into use uh, among uh, medical professionals at the late 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, perhaps, uh, it does uh, mark them apart. And I think that uh, persists to some extent, uh, even today. And, and, and so uh, that association with uh, hygiene and the, the, the power of medical authority uh, makes a mask a mask that is, it's a sort of a symbolic uh, extension of the uh, human face that does more than simply block out some particles that might carry infection. You make an interesting point about um, the gender split when it comes to masks. Again, talk about blocking something out. Yes. So, well, I mean, in Japan, the, uh, the gender split when it comes to everything, the, the gender differences are uh, very uh, pronounced and expressed in, in, in Japan. And, and 
the gender split that I talk about is, was really just a personal observation confirmed by a little bit of looking around online that it seems a lot more women wear them than men in public. Um, and I had always suspected this had as much to do with a sort of a sense of privacy in the way they were choosing to uh, present themselves in public uh, as it did to do with uh, um, health concern. And I, I think it's a, a, a mix of both of those things. And this also is not at all a, a, a timeless national tradition. It seems to be something that has emerged as a custom among uh, women in the past couple of decades. You mentioned also the aesthetics of masks. That, I thought that was, that, that's a good point, that not only are they a necessary thing, that they become part of the, of the way we, we fight against the, a pandemic. But is there a question that, that, that they, can be, they can be rather beautiful, they can be quite daring, they, they can work with an outfit? That there's, there's a whole potential for the aesthetics of masks, which we've clearly not got to yet in this country. But once you establish them as normal, you can then presumably adorn them in some ways as well. Well, I mean, that seems to be ongoing right now as people are at home sewing uh, handmade masks, right, as yeah. you mentioned, and, yeah. and, and uh, becoming inventive and interesting. You know, there are potential whenever you uh, work with fabric and you're going to apply it to your body. So I think we're at, we're at the very dawn of the <laughs> uh, uh, mask uh, 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 fashion world's uh, uh, sort of emerging potential but yeah. in, more, in broader terms there is something there about the the choice of a mask and, and i've seen recently i don't know if this is i have this impression it's coming out of taiwan but i don't know the black masks that make you look like darth vader um yeah. not so popular in japan but i've seen quite a lot of other asians wearing them and that's well, definitely an aesthetic choice. And I, I mean, I suspect, and again, if, if we talk about the Western influence in this whole mask wearing thing, if you go back far enough, I suspect it's only a matter of time before the whole commedia dell'arte character comes into play with a nose case and, you know, a long cloak and a, and a, a wide rimmed hat. I mean, I'm sh- surely that's due a comeback. Or the V for Vengeance. They think people start wearing the V for Vengeance <laughs> mask, won't they, as well? The, the potentials are, are the, the, the possibilities are limitless. Um, exactly. but, but I do think that, that precisely the sorts of things you're imagining are why a lot of people have resisted it, too. Because right. the mask does things to your face. Jordan San, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to speak with you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to BJ Silcox, Jordan Sand and James Waddle. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. We do need your support. And this week is a beautiful issue. We do a special on graphic novels, including an extract from Slaughterhouse-Five, plus the cat-killing Czech phenomenon Bohemil Harabal, How to Teach Remotely, The Tale of Calamity Jane and more. Next week, we have a life writing issue. So think about all the ways to tell a life story. And of course, Thea you're going to be a published author in that very medium as well, so you're an expert. (laughs) Almost certainly. Exactly. Well, you'll find out how expert uh, if you tune in. Until next time, (laughs) from Thea and from me, goodbye. (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.